The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in the Gospel of John to John chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is on page 886. John chapter 1, the first five verses, and then reading verses 14 to 18. Let's hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord God, for the one who is full of grace and truth. We ask you now that the Spirit of Christ would be in our midst, that we might comprehend and delight in and be in awe of the wonder of the incarnation of the God-man Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from our sins. Lord God, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Without you, anything we do now is fruitless. So we cast ourselves upon your mercy in speech and in hearing that you might do what is pleasing in your sight. Build us up, strengthen us, give us grace. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're here this morning to contemplate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to do it in such a way as to ask, why did God become man? Why did God become man? Orthodox Christianity throughout the ages has firmly held to our Lord Jesus Christ possessing two natures in one person. One person, one man, not two men, just one man, but possessing a divine and a human nature. That is to say, Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. And this is just not some theological nicety, something that we find in creeds or in the details of a systematic theology. About a thousand years ago, Anselm of Canterbury, in one of his great works, asked and proved the question, why did God become man? Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? 
and he showed that it was necessary to the work of redemption, necessary to the work of salvation, to have a Savior who was both God and man. In other words, if there is no God-man saving us, there is no salvation. He wrote famously, because only God could make atonement for sin, and only man should, it was necessary that the God-man make it. Because only God could make atonement for sin, and only man should, it was necessary then that the God-man make atonement. We're going to consider that really through the scriptures, that idea of why did God become man in order to secure salvation for us. And we're going to do that really in three ways. Firstly, we look at the doctrine very, very briefly, stating it rather than explaining it. The doctrine of the incarnation, that God took on flesh, that Jesus is the God-man. Secondly, we'll ask a question, why must the Savior be truly God? And thirdly, we'll ask a question, why must the Savior be truly man? So Jesus, God and man, why must the Savior be God? Why must the Savior be man? Let's consider then the doctrine of the incarnation, God taking flesh unto himself. There's a question asked in the Gospels, who do men say that I am, Jesus said? not really concerned with what men say about the Lord Jesus. Let's be concerned about what Scripture says. And we can answer the question of who is Jesus in many ways. I want to do it in three ways, which will help us understand the necessity of Jesus being the God-man. Who is Jesus? The first answer, and the most simple answer, he is God. That's the answer we should always return to. He is God. Peter answers that question correctly in Matthew chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's to say Peter was acknowledging Jesus' divine nature, his godness, if you like, that he was the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son of God. While clearly at that time he didn't fully understand what he was saying, Scripture clearly teaches us that the person we know as Jesus of Nazareth was at that very time also fully God. We read that in John chapter 1, did we not? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's making it very clear. The one we know as Jesus of Nazareth is the word, is God. Plain and simple. We see it also very clearly from other texts in Scripture. Uh, Matthew one twenty two, the birth announcement of Christ is followed by these words. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Matthew adds, which means God with us. That is to say that even when Jesus was in the womb and when he was born, he was fully God. 
It's very clear we can answer the question, who is Jesus? He is, he was, he always will be God. But another way to answer that question is simply saying he is also a man. Yes, he is known in the Gospels as what? Jesus of Nazareth. It's testifying to the reality that he was known to be a real person who lived in a real town uh, called Nazareth, and he came from a real family. John says it this way, the word became flesh. The eternal word, the son of God, took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He became flesh. The gospels testify ably of a real man called Joseph, a real woman called Mary, and a real baby called Jesus. Yes, he's God. Yes, he is man, fully God, fully man. But we could also answer the question, who do men say that I am, or who is Jesus, by looking at his titles. And this binds the two ideas together of God and man. Peter said in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Messiah, the King who is coming to deliver his people. Jesus' favorite name for himself or title was the Son of Man, that Old Testament figure who would come in power and deliver his people. Matthew one twenty one, which we've already heard this morning in our um, uh, the assurance of, our, 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 of, of pardon, reads this way, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The long and the short of it is this. Scripture very clearly teaches this. And children, if you're following the outline, this is the answer to question one in your outline. Jesus of Nazareth was one person, one man. Not many people, not many men, one person, one man. And question two, children, following after it, fully God, fully man. He has two natures, one person in two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And we're told through his titles and his names why that one came. He came to save. Now, this is shown back as far as Ezekiel ch chapter 34, that God said he himself would come to save his people. Ezekiel 34 verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. It's a very emphatic way of writing in the Hebrew. Thus says the Lord God, I, I myself, three times, it says God will come. God will come and deliver his people. He will save his people. The truth of Scripture very simply stated is this. God came to earth, took to himself human nature in order that he would save his people from their sins. It's a staggering doctrine, is it not? An almost unbelievable doctrine. J.A. Packer writes this, The more you think about it, the incarnation of Jesus, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing 
in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. God took to himself flesh in order to save his people from their sins. But we can say more than that. And and we can say more than that by asking the question, well, why? Was it necessary that God should come and take flesh? Why must the Savior be truly God? Why must the Savior be truly God? Children, the answer to your question three. Anselm answered, because only God could make atonement for sins. Only God could make atonement for sins. And that's implied, before we get to specific scriptures, that's implied by the events of salvation. God did take flesh. It is in Jesus Christ that we see him. Jesus Christ did go to the cross. Jesus Christ saved his people from their sins. The implication is that according to God's plan, it was absolutely necessary for the Savior both to be God and to be man, that there was not another way. Anselm says only God could make atonement for sin. That's to say only God had the ability to pay the price for sin. And we can deduce from logic and from Scripture that mere men or creatures could not pay that price for sin. We can also deduce from logic and Scripture that only God had the inclination to pay this debt. That mere man left to his own accord has no desire to be reconciled to God. Anselm's statement also implies the following, that God is the injured party. He is the one who is chiefly offended in sin, and only he can determine what manner uh, of of penalty uh, man should face. Psalm 51 speaks to this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But also we understand that God is just. God cannot just sweep sin under the carpet as if it never happened. He needs to be just in dealing with sin. Romans 3.26 tells us that he is both just in dealing with sin and the justifier of those who are saved. So is Anselm correct? Could only God make atonement for sin? Consider what Scripture says. And by the way, the Heidelberg Catechism has a lovely outline of these answers. You'll find that in our hymnal. The first thing we need to consider is this, as Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sins shall die. Each of us individually is responsible for our own sin. And Scripture says if you've sinned, you will die on account of your own sins. Secondly, Hebrews 9.13 tells us the blood of animals or any other creature could not take away that sin, could not purify the conscience, could not make atonement. So we ask the question, can we or any other creature pay the penalty for our sins? Can you pay the penalty for your own sins? Could it even be that a perfect person could pay the penalty for their sins? The answer is no, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer God 
in terms of righteousness, in terms of holiness, in terms of worth. We couldn't even pay for our own sins, let alone all the sins of the elect throughout all of time. No creature can pay for sins in an eternal way. So how do we understand that sins were paid for? Listen to this from Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The blood of God, of God the Son, who took to himself a true body. It's the blood of God, says Paul, that redeems sinners from sin. No mere creature, no mere man could ever pay the penalty for sins. It had to be the God-man. God obtained the church with his blood. It's not possible for mere man to withstand the weight, the appalling wrath of God. It had to be God who came in our place. We see this in the Old Testament. Who was the one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Who was the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted? Who was the one who was wounded for our transgressions? It was the servant of the Lord. Who was that servant? The incarnate Son, the God-man. His divine nature through all his humiliation, through all his sufferings, upheld his human nature. Divine nature, as it were, carried Jesus through all the appalling sufferings of the cross and the wrath of God. It was the divine nature that gave infinite worth to Christ's sacrifice at the cross. But it's not just a divine nature that takes away our sins. It's a divine nature that does more for us than that. The Christian knows and understands, do we not, that it's not simply good news in the fact that Jesus died to take away our sins. That's Gospel 101. We need to go beyond that. Jesus did die to take away the sins of his people, but he also did something more than that. He is God. And as God, he provides us with a righteousness which will allow us to stand before God on that last day. A divine righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Isn't that staggering? It's not just Jesus' human perfection attributed to us and received by faith alone. It's a divine righteousness, friend. Remarkable truth. And not simply equipped with a human righteousness, as amazing as that would be. Paul says it transcends that. John says it in John chapter 1 again. The word became flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full 
of grace and truth. God, that he might take away our sins. God, that he might provide us with righteousness. Friends, that's the reality of the one born in Bethlehem. Even at his birth, even in utero, he was the eternal God. The eternal God, glorious, righteous, true as the Heidelberg Catechism calls him. He is our Savior. And again, friends, there's great payoff to this, great value to you as you think through this doctrine. Because Jesus is God, we have then an unshakable confidence in him and in our salvation. God has entered history that he might guarantee, that he might save that he might provide efficacy and value in the atonement, that he might provide you, dear Christian, with a righteousness of an unimpeachable magnitude. That will allow you, friends, to stand on the last day, and it will equip you to stand through all the hard days between now and then. These are great things indeed. We don't move ourselves from the Christmas card version of the Incarnation. That's nonsense. We need to delve into the depths of Scripture, the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're only scratching the surface here today. When you think of Jesus, think of great things. Think of him greatly. But we also know Scripture says that he was true man, true God, true God, but also true man. Children, this is the answer to question four on your outlines. And some wrote, because only God could make atonement for sin, but only man should make atonement for sin. Only man should make atonement for sin. It was necessary for the God-man to make it. Yes, two natures in one person, not two people, one person with two natures. It was necessary that only man should pay for sin. Why? Because God is not guilty of sin. Plain and simple. God is not responsible for sins. God cannot suffer the punishment in that sense for his broken law and his broken covenant. Man has broken his covenant. Man has broken his law. Man has offended him. Adam did it personally, and we were represented in him. We became guilty like him. And after that, we have continued in that sin, sinning individually and sinning continually. We are guilty of sin. And justice requires then that a true man should suffer for the sake of God's people. The babe born in the manger was a true human babe. The man that went to the cross was a true man. We know that from Scripture. Jesus, we're told, was born. We're given an account of him growing up very briefly. He grew in knowledge. He grew in grace and so on. He was hungry. He ate. He wept. And ultimately, they put him to death. He died. And he was raised again. 
That's to say, from his conception, even now to his eternal glorification, the Son of God is also true man, as well as true God. Our catechism speaks of him taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. There is a human in heaven, and his name is Jesus. Yet we have to ask ourselves, do we not, was Jesus' humanity any different to ours, to yours and mine? In some senses, we'd have to say no, it's precisely the same. But the Heidelberg Catechism again gives us an answer which we all know already when it says a sinner could never pay for others. A sinner could never pay the debt for others. Our humanity is different in a sense to Christ's in this way, that by nature and by representation we're in Adam and by our own actions we are sinners and sinful. By nature, by representation, and by personal action, we are sinners and sinful. But Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through his divine nature, through his personal conduct, and in his humanity, he was actually sinless. That's the big difference. He did not have a sin nature. He was not represented by Adam as we are, and he had no personal sin. Hebrews chapter 7 speaks to us of this reality, describing our great high priest Jesus. Hebrews 7 verse 27, he has no need, that's Jesus, has no need like those high priests of the Old Testament to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The previous verse says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's not like the rest of us. He has no need for personal sacrifice for his own sins, for he has none. That's the great miracle of the Incarnation, that the God-man had no sin. Even as a young child, there was never a moment when Jesus put a foot wrong. That's staggering. And friends, that's the reason why he is capable to go to the cross as a sacrifice. His sinlessness meant that he was worthy to go to the cross. Because a sinful man could not pay the penalty, he was worthy to go to the cross. He had to be a man, but a sinless one. He had to be that lamb without spot or blemish. So Christ's humanity firstly had to be real, and secondly it had to be without sin. Heidelberg Catechism, again, gives us a good question and answer. What kind of mediator, or what kind of saviour, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we then look for? The answer is this. One who is a true and righteous man 
yet more powerful than all the creatures, that is, one who is also God. A true and righteous man, and yet more powerful, more worthy, more dignified than all creatures, that is, one who is also God. And friends, that's what we have in the Incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. The Word who was with God and was God, John says, became flesh. He dwelt among us. Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins. Friends, as we wrap this up, it's vital that we distinguish biblical Christianity from the cults and the heresies that abound in our modern age about Jesus. Two of the clearest clearest denials of the person of Jesus Christ and therefore of the doctrine of biblical salvation, firstly we'll find the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. Jesus was not God, they say. The Mormons do likewise. They deny the deity of Christ at his birth, that later on he was adopted as the Son of God, but was not God himself. You will find those two knocking on your door. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they do not possess the gospel truth because they believe in the wrong Jesus. And thus they do not have salvation. We must hold, friends, to a Christ, a Jesus, a Savior, who is fully God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory as Father and Spirit, and a Jesus who is fully man, like us. So I want to say to you, friends, when you consider Christ, consider him in his fullness. The sense in which we're all beginners when it comes to this, of considering Christ the God-man. Think on Jesus the God-man. Think deeply on him. Because when you think on him in this way, you will understand the nature of your own salvation. Many Christians struggle with assurance at times. Am I a Christian? Have I done enough to please God? Am I good enough? Jesus, the God-man, tells us that everything that is necessary for salvation has been done by him. He said on the cross, it is finished. No more. No more work needs to be done. Enough has been done. You see, it's vital for our understanding, friends. That eternal life is found not in we, what we do, but in who and what the Savior has done. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son, has left no stone unturned to procure a certain salvation. He's left no loose ends for you to tie up, friends. It's not a 90% job that you need to buttress with your own contribution of 10%. It's God who's offended in sin. 
And friends, it's God who's provided a way back from sin. I'll talk to any today that are here without faith in this Christ. You might have faith in a Christ, but it's not this Christ, the Christ of Scripture. If that's you and you have a faith or you have no faith, your faith or no faith will not save you. Your faith in a false Jesus will not save you. And we would urge you this day to repent and believe and embrace this Jesus, the Jesus of the Word of God, rest on him, receive salvation in him, and never work again for it, because he's done it already. And yet many of you are Christians. Many of you have received this God-man, Jesus Christ. What is it for you to do? Oh, come. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Worship him, adore him, obey him with a full heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all of your strength. As you consider the incarnation of the Lord, whether it's now or throughout the year, Do not fall into the sentimentality of the days that surround this Lord's Day. Do not fall into the worldly image of who Jesus is. Let's never forget why God became man. That the God-man should not only be born, but should go to the cross and provide for us that which was necessary And that which was perfect, that your sins might be dealt with once for all, that hell might be subdued, and that you, dear Christian, may have peace with heaven. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We worship you, Lord God, the only true and living God, and none like you in heaven above or earth beneath. We praise you, Lord Christ, for coming in the way that your word has explained to us today, that we, your people, might be filled with joy, because you, the King, you, the Lord, have come to us. Bless us, then, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.